Welcome to the Valley of the Suns podcast, part of the Fansided Podcast Network. Here's your host, Gerald Borgay. Welcome, Valley boys and girls, to another episode of the Valley of the Suns podcast, part of the Fansided Podcast Network. I'm your host, Gerald Borgay, and I'm very excited for this weekend edition of the show. We have a very special guest. He's someone I've been following for years on Twitter and actually got to meet in person finally at uh, the Suns game the other day, Mr. Justin Russo. Justin, how are you doing today? I am doing as well as I can be doing off of minimal sleep over the last month or so. I feel you there. I was not ready for this playoff grind. I've been loving it because this is my first time. I've been on the beat for six years and this is a first for me, but it uh, it definitely takes more of a toll than I was expecting. And probably for you, because you're traveling, you traveled to Phoenix for games one and two. Have you been traveling the whole postseason? I didn't travel for the whole pill season. I only went for those because I was like, look, it's their first ever Western Conference final games. I need to be there just in case something happens. And lo and behold, a lot ended up happening. <laughs> yeah. This has been a, uh, a pretty batshit series for, you know, not having two superstars for the first two games. But um, we're going to dive right into this, especially because Justin has the Clippers perspective, which is always good to get um, from the other side of the aisle here. Um, first question, this is pretty basic. Obviously, we've both kind of sat through that rock fight <laughs> that was game four. Um Justin, what are your thoughts on this series? Because obviously the Clippers are down 3-1, but they have come back from deficits before. They are technically plus three in points scored in this series. Is this over or is there a chance the Clippers can make this an actual series again? I think it's over. Um, if I'm being completely honest, I just think it's over. I mean, they're exhausted. Um, they're really beaten up and injured. They're, they're throwing out lineups and minutes that are just like they have to do it because no one else is available and you could see it taking its hold you saw it in game four because um i ended up noticing that in about the third quarter of game four ty was just shortchanging everyone where it was like you're going in for a three minute stretch and coming out and like he kept like these quick rotations and it was that was the sign to me that they were like this was the game they'd really like they'd really felt the fatigue of the last, you know, 35, 36 days. And, you know, it's been a brutal schedule. It is what it is. You know, the team hasn't made excuses. They've always said, you know, we're one of the last four teams. So you just got to deal with it. And, you know, they fought like hell to get to this point. You know, we, we could argue all day, it, you know, this could be three, one either way at this point, you know, I mean, just is what it is, but I just don't think there's anything left in the tank for them. Like, I think, Game two was the first like gut shot for them. And then game game four was really the one where it was like, there's that four minute stretch in the fourth quarter where no one could hit anything and they couldn't get the lead no matter what they did four minutes. They couldn't, they couldn't get the lead. And I think that was the real, like, like nail in the coffin right there. Yeah, I, I thought, you know, looking back on now that we've had some time to breathe and digest what we've seen over the first four games, I, I really do feel like they needed either game two or game four or both obviously would have been ideal in their situation, but they had game two, they were up one with less than a second to play. 
if they just hold on or if Jay Crowder's pass scratches the backboard at all. Or if Demarcus Cousins is in the right spot. (laughs) I mean, at the end of the day, I think that's what it ultimately comes down to is if Demarcus Cousins is in the right spot, maybe none of that happens. I'm sorry. We got to talk about this for game four. What was your reaction on Media Row watching Demarcus Cousins throw the ball off the backboard? (laughs) Well, we all knew he was going to intentionally miss the second one. Like, it just made sense. But, man, he rifled that thing. And I just just looked at it like, all right, you got to do what you got to do. I I thought for a second he was going for the quick, like, you know, get the ball and immediately throw it at the rim to catch people off guard. But it was so high off the backboard. There's no way that's what he was trying to do. I don't, I don't know what he was trying to do. All I know actually is if you're looking for a guy to intentionally miss free throws, the two Paul George misses were like picture perfect. (laughs) It really were. Um, but yeah, I, I felt like they really needed that game two or game four. I think they missed 12 game tying or go-ahead shots in game Something four. like that, yeah. Yeah, in the fourth quarter when it was just knotted at 71-70 for what felt like forever. I, um, I had two Suns fans in front of me who turned around when like there was a timeout taken at like 637 or something like that, and it was still 71-70. They turned around and looked at me because they knew, you know, I'm covering the game. They, they straight up asked me, how many shots have been made in this quarter? So I, I looked real quick and I did the quick math. I said, there's been two. And I said, the score for the quarter is four, two, and we're halfway through. And even they were like, this is the worst basketball I've ever watched. Like at the end of the game, those two and like some of the reporters, like me amongst them were just like, I don't know how to describe the fourth quarter we just watched. Cause it was legitimately bad. It was so bad. It was so. I think the final tally was a combined seven for thirty-eight by both teams in the fourth quarter, which is, I mean, that sounds better than it felt like, honestly. Because the, that, the, they only combined for one three in the second half. Oh my god! I didn't even realize that it was a Reggie Jackson three in the third quarter, and that's the only three either team hit in the second half. Because <laughs> I knew the Suns hadn't made one. I think they went like 0 for 9 or something stupid in the second half. And they, yeah. they got away with a win, scoring 34 second half points, which is <laughs> that's something else. Which is funny, because if they, with their win, they, they scored 34 in the second half. And in the first half, the Clippers scored like 36. So it's like, either way, one of these teams was winning a game where they just yeah. were absolutely horrific. It was, it was something else. I, I agree with you though. I, I think I, I wouldn't be surprised if the Clippers somehow came out and won game five, just because they're a resilient team. But I also feel like at home like that, I mean, you got to go to a couple Suns games. You heard how loud it is. There. Yeah. It's a, it's a different animal. And, and the Suns have only lost, I think, once at home to the Lakers in the first round so far. Um, so I, I, I feel like the Clippers could force a game six, but I, I really have a hard time seeing it get past game five, especially, I mean, we said this after game three that Chris Paul and Devin Booker aren't going to shoot 10 for 40 again. They shot 14 for 44, so slightly <laughs> improved. But I, I have a hard time with the series shifting back home, seeing that happen a third straight time. I feel like that's what needs to happen. The Clippers need to you know, capitalize on the three-point line. Suns stars need to struggle again. It just needs to be a perfect storm. I don't, I don't know if I see that happening. So I guess my next question for you is, there's been a lot of things that have contributed to where we're at right now, this 3-1 deficit that the Clippers are in. 
what for you has been the biggest thing? I know you mentioned the fatigue, obviously not having Kawhi Leonard is, is huge and can't be understated or overstated, but um, what, what has stood out to you as the biggest reason why we're at where we're at so far? I just don't think they've made enough of the shots that they would have, that they'd like to get like kind of thing. Um, they haven't shot well from three, obviously game one, I think they made like 23s, but they wore down in the second half, which is to be expected. Um, I just don't think they've made enough of the shots that they like to get and, you know, credit the Phoenix defense. They've done a, you know, I, we talked to Ty Lue today and Ty said Phoenix has done a great job of just shrinking the floor. They've done a great job of, you know, stepping up on pick and roll. So PG and Reggie can't get downhill and all, all these things. So, you know, Phoenix has done a lot of things to impact the Clippers. I also think the Clippers have done a great job impacting themselves because they're not getting into early offense. Everything is like under 10 seconds on the shot clock. And it's like, when you get to that point of a shot clock, nothing, nothing good is coming from that. Most likely um, they've done it to themselves a lot. It's just, you know, we could, we could point to all these little things and, you know, we could point to fatigue and Kawhi being out at the end of the day, if they just made a couple more free throws in game two or game four, you know, who knows? I, I, I just don't think they've made enough of the looks that they've made throughout the season and throughout the postseason prior to this. Yeah, I, and it's interesting to hear you say that because I know Monty was very complimentary. I had asked him after game four, I think, um, if he's been happy with the quality of looks that they're getting. Obviously, the Suns shot like four for 20 from three um, in, in game four. And he was saying like, look, you got to credit their defense because their ability to switch, that makes it really hard to get a lot of the open looks that we normally get. So it's interesting to hear that's the same perspective on the other side, especially with the late, like late shot clock offense, because I swear to God, if I have to watch Chris Paul back down his way to half court and like barely cross the half court line with like 17 seconds left, I'm going to lose my mind because every single time. And it, and it really, it's interesting to hear you say that because it feels like on the Sun side as well, the Clippers have done a great job of preventing them from getting into early offense and making them run their offense, you know, way away well, from the basket. Well, that's the thing. In, in the early parts of game four, what made Phoenix successful was getting out in transition mm -hmm. and getting that early offensive stuff. And the Clippers just never could do that. It was like everything was just the slow, plodding, like half court style and with these two defenses, you know, even with guys in and out of the lineups or whatever, like if you're going against a set defense for 48 minutes, it's going to be a rough day. Like all game is just a grind, you know, obviously game four kind of, I guess if you just look at game four, it's like everything was a grind, but even in games three, two, one, like, you know, there were, there were segments of those three games where nothing was easy for either team. It was a, it was a lot of late clock stuff. It was a lot of, Oh my God, please save us. And sometimes it worked. Sometimes it didn't game four. It literally worked for nobody. And I think that's why we got the game that we got. Yeah. It's, I mean, two really good defensive teams, two teams that can switch a lot. I feel like Deandre Ayton has been key in that because, you know, we saw it last series, the way that the Clippers were able to basically play the defensive player off the, of the year off the court. Um, that luxury hasn't been there with Aiton. And I feel like Zubats have done a really good job of contesting a lot of those mid-range jumpers that Chris Paul and Devin Booker normally make. So it's been pretty fascinating to watch how both of these kind of, you know, taller, 
centers that you would assume are old school just stick it out and play really well on those switches and in the small ball series. Um, and you mentioned the three-point shooting thing as well. The Clippers are at 34% for the series now after game four. That obviously didn't help, but we're talking small sample sizes here. Yeah. You know, they were the league best 41% in the regular season, so that's a that's a big downturn. Um, I wanted to talk to you about DeAndre Ayton a little bit more, though, because I'm curious what, obviously from a Suns perspective, what he's done in this postseason has been huge. It's been it literally has raised their ceiling to where they are now as a potential finals threat. Um, as a, as someone who covers the Clippers, has he been kind of the thorn in LA's side that it, it seems like he has been from Phoenix's perspective? So it's a little weird because if you just look at the numbers, it's like, that's been the best player on the floor. Like, like if you really think about it, like that's been the singular best player on the floor in the series. But there are times where I don't feel like he's the reason why the Clippers are down 3-1 mm-hmm. because I think there's been instances throughout the series where, yes, he's been impactful, but the Clippers have kind of worked their way around some of it. But in game four, I really felt that was the game that Aiton was at his best in the series because he was actually able to be a rim deterrent. He was blocking shots at the rim. He was contesting higher on pick and rolls. And on the other end, he was giving them problems on the offensive glass. And, you know, when Zoo had to come out of the game, they couldn't grab a rebound. You know, in the fourth quarter, I think he grabbed like four or five offensive rebounds just because they had no one big enough to body him. You know, Marcus is on one leg, Batum is hobbled and obviously cannot get to the level that Aiton can uh, as, a, as a leaper. And, and Aiton's ability to be that much more athletic than Porzingis, obviously Boban, and definitely Rudy Gobert has kind of put the Clippers in a pickle where it's like when they played the other two teams this, this uh, postseason, they were able to kind of corral the ball handler better because they didn't have to really pay attention to the role threat. And mm. now they have to, and it has killed them at times. I, I know Phoenix scored out of a lob set uh, in the middle of the fourth quarter, like the first points in like four or five minutes of that quarter. And it's like, you you know, obviously the the lob at the end of game two, everyone talks about, but those are the times where to me, Aiton is a problem because you will almost like lose him. And it feels weird to lose a seven footer, but there are times where you're, you know, Ty talked about it in media today was you pay so much attention to Devin and Chris, you will lose DeAndre Ayton at times, and then you'll have to pay for it. Yeah, and, and that's one area of improvement for him compared to the regular season, especially as he has really done a great job of setting sturdy screens and then rolling and, and doing a good job of making himself available because a lot of times in the past, he would just kind of roll and whatever happens, happens. He's you know carving out space. He's going to spots where he's wide open, like you're saying, just kind of letting himself get lost in there a little bit. Um, and especially and if, if someone's going to find you, it will be Chris Paul. If yeah, you're a big man. <laughs> exactly. And, and if they do send an extra body at him to get in that space that he's moving into, then that's when the weak side threes are open for the Suns. Haven't really made any of them, but that's when they open up. Um, yeah, I, I feel like it was interesting in game four because I agree with you. That was easily his best game of the series. And it came after Zubats kind of handled him a little bit in game three. Um, Aiden had said that was 
kind of his motivation for game four was that, you know, I got outplayed and I had to make up for it. So that's what he did. Um, he had 19 points, 22 rebounds, and four blocks, which put him alongside Dwight Howard, Hakeem, Elijah Wan, and David Robinson as the only players with those numbers plus 57% shooting in a playoff game. So, you know, obviously we've missed that good? parameters a little bit. Yeah, but it's not bad. <laughs> yeah, I was just, I was just wondering, I don't know if those guys ever did anything in their careers. So that's, I mean, right. they, they had okay careers. They were journeymen, but it's <laughs> fine. Um, <laughs> but uh, last thing for the Suns clips, I'm assuming that I know the answer to this already because he didn't travel with the team to game five, but assuming the Clippers force a longer series. Do we have anything new on Kawhi Leonard? Is there any hope that he will actually return in this series? From everything I've heard from the people that I've talked to, um, the the simple answer is, I don't know. The, the more convoluted answer is, I don't think he's returning in this series no matter what. I, I don't even think of the Clippers force a game seven, he's coming back. I just, there's too much that's unknown. I mean, you know, we've seen images of him where he's without a knee brace and he's, you know, he looks like he's okay walking, but that could be anything. Like, you don't know. I mean, yeah. it is what it is. So um, I, 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 there, there's nothing new. He's out for game five. He didn't travel. He's back in Los Angeles for rehab. The, the, the simple answer is, I don't know. I just do not think you're going to see him at all in this series. And, you know, if the Clippers do pull this comeback off, which I don't think they will, but if they do, I'm not even sure you see him for the finals. Oh, wow. Like, I just, you know, because Paul George had a comment after game four where he said, you know, if he's not 100%, we don't want him. Like, his right. health, his, his long-term health is more important, which makes me think, like, even if he might try to play, they might just tell him not, like, no, like, you're not playing kind of thing. Yeah. That's, that's interesting because I, it has been kind of weird just, you know, especially if, <laughs> if you're hoping that a guy like Kawhi Leonard comes back, it's not a good sign to see him, you know, sitting in a suite level kind of just by himself <laughs> with, or we could just with his family. During well, game. it's interesting because um, I was talking to someone in, uh, before game four about Kawhi in the suite and we were discussing it about like, you know, is it really that big of a deal? And they made an interesting point. They said one of, I guess the reasons he might be in the suite rather than like on the floor area is if there's a loose ball, he doesn't have to move. Like he doesn't have to like do some quick burst to get out of the way. Although I do find it funny that Sergi Baca had back surgery about a month ago and he's just standing on the sideline. So I, the Clippers and injuries, we never know what's really up. So, I mean, at this point, your guess is as good as mine with him. It, it feels like it's getting that way for more teams around the league now too, because the Suns are usually pretty coy about that type of thing. It's a little frustrating. Um, but I guess I, do you put any stock in, I mean, we saw like the rumors and the reports that were circulating on aggregators and then you click on what the source is and it's Skip Bayless. So I don't know how much stock anybody wants to put in this, but do you put any stock in like those rumors that Kawhi is now upset with the Clippers medical staff? I kind of look at it as I don't think there's any way of knowing. Like if Kawhi is upset with them, like I'm certainly not going to hear about it. I'm sure not even the players on the team or most people will even hear. The way that Kawhi is, you don't hear about it until he's ready to tell you. Yeah. So I, I kind of just think, 
you know, if there is an issue, I'm sure the team will know. And at the end of the day, if it comes between a training staff and Kawhi Leonard, I think you're probably going to choose Kawhi Leonard at this point. Yeah, that, that would make sense. It's just, I, it was one of those things that popped on the radar and you're like, okay, I feel like that could be true, but I feel like I don't really trust the source. And so it's one of those things that, like you said, I don't, I don't. It could be. It absolutely yeah. could be true. I mean, it was true with the San Antonio Spurs and him. I, so I understand like there, it's not really a track record, a track record. There is one instance of him being that way before. I don't know if that's how he is now. There could be something to that. I just look at it like, I'm not like, I, I it's really, it's a, like a weird thing to entertain because no one knows what goes on in Kawhi Leonard's mind other than Kawhi Leonard. So trying to decipher whether or not he's upset with the medical staff is like just weird for me. Yeah, no, that makes sense. He's a, he's a very mysterious guy. So I'm, I'm content with not reading into the situation until we know more, probably years down the road. (laughs) Yeah. We'll hear about it in like a tell all book that he'll write when he's like 70 and then we'll be like, Oh, okay. (laughs) Oh, now we know finally. Um, but that's probably going to do it for Suns Clippers talk for today. We're going to take a quick break and be right back after this. All right. So for our final segment, we are going to be talking about a show that I was very happy that Justin is also a fan of because I feel like it's slept on quite a bit. Um, Mythic Quest, which is an original series on Apple TV Plus. It's about, uh, it's one of those kind of workplace comedies a la community, but set in they develop video games or video game developers. And uh, it's one of my favorite things that I've been to watch during the pandemic. Um, Justin, how long have you been watching the show for? So I actually watched it when it debuted on Apple TV plus um, I ended up getting an iPad uh, late December or something like that of 2019. And so I got Apple TV plus and I think the show came out in like February and so I started watching. I was like, oh, this looks like it'll be something, you know, it's a video game thing. I Like this should be up my alley. And mm-hmm. started watching it. I thought it was the funny, one of the funniest things I've ever seen. And it, it has absolutely not disappointed for me, like in the two seasons. It's, it's just iconic to me. It really has been very good. And I was surprised because I had, I think I had a like free month or however many months they give you. I have like a full year, I think now free apple tv plus i don't know how that yeah happened. they gave they gave me a full year and they gave me an extra three months after that did they really <laughs> yeah i was like i was like this is weird i'll take it yeah i was just i so i got the free week trial or at least that's what i thought i was doing just so i could watch uh ted lasso and the morning show because i heard that those were both really good they're good in the first week and they are really good yeah. um but i was like okay well they gave me another month so i've got more to choose from and I was like Mythic Quest this looks funny it's with the guy from uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia and I like him so I was like all right let's let's check it out and it's really funny really intelligent and honestly it hits you in the feels a couple of times when you are not expecting it like I don't I don't know if anything hit me well there were a couple of things but that hit hard the pandemic episode like during the pandemic because that's when I watched it um like at the very end <laughs> but like it's a really well done show and I've been very impressed with how good it is and how confident it's been done like because j- it's only it just wrapped up season two so it's relatively new um but I I mean what so what's your favorite because there are a lot of good characters in the show um who is your favorite character in Mythic Quest 
it's kind of weird, but I like CW because of how like over the top he is. Like he takes himself so seriously that he doesn't see that he's basically just a caricature of himself. Right. And so like the season two episodes where they focus on him mm-hmm. and you get to see like his, like, I think one of them's even titled like backstory. Yeah. And so you, you figure out and you realize why he became the way he is, is some of the best uh, television I've ever seen because you know, in season one, they didn't really expand on like who he was. Like he was just some writer mm-hmm. and you kind of just go with that. And then when you find out like his whole thing in season two, it's like, like, wow, like this guy, like, you know, like all the stuff that was uh, going on with him. And it's like, I just find his character just hilarious for like, because he's not very PC. So yeah. it's it's <laughs> funny to see the the break between some of the characters and him when it comes to just that. Yeah, it's it's I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to talk about that a little bit because in especially in season one, he was just purely comic relief because he's so he says all these inappropriate things. He's like from a bygone era. Um, he's just you know, he's he's the inappropriate old guy making bad jokes. <laughs> like that's what he was. And it was funny, but like this season had two episodes dedicated solely to him. Um, one of which was, you know, more of a flashback as far as his his origin story um, with Big Head from Silicon Valley, which I actually thought was a really perfect, he did a fantastic job in that one episode. But um, I was, of all the characters for them to dive into their origin and why they are the way that they are, I was not expecting CW and I was not expecting it to be so good. Like it was actually yeah. compelling television. Yeah, like the whole the whole thing of going back in time to show like why he became so cynical and everything mm-hmm. was actually really well done it, you know you got to see a depth to a character who was just comic relief before that mm-hmm. and i think even before season or like even in the early parts of season two you didn't even really see him that much mm-hmm. so it was it was nice to kind of bring him back in and then really go through everything to give him that depth and that feel and he became essentially a sympathetic character. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, he, he goes and has the face-to-face, you know, the makeup dinners, I guess, so to speak, with, <laughs> with his old friend, you know, mm-hmm. and then his, his whole, he's metaphorically going to do something and then he really <laughs> wants to do something. And the moment that they have at the end of that episode, it was like two friends who would finally like, all right, we found each other again. Like this is, it was, it was just nice to be honest. Yeah, it really was. And it's, I mean, I, he was kind of the one character that didn't really have much depth and they gave him depth. And I was like, okay, that's pretty masterful for a show to take. It's like most one dimensional kind of one note character and give him a backstory that now paints him in a more sympathetic and borderline tragic light i mean we don't know what's gonna happen with him next but like you were saying they they really kind of uh because of the pandemic and whatnot he had, he was kept away from you know the workplace and i don't know he if was that, on an ipad yeah <laughs> he was on an ipad they made him like a little like a little yeah. uh like a robot person or whatever or a, what's it called um a mannequin they put him on a mannequin yeah it was like oh okay that was one of my favorite visuals from the whole show. They just have this dressed up mannequin and then they put the iPad like right where it's etched. It was creepy. Like it was actually kind of creepy to look at. 
Uh, it was so good. I do want to talk to you about my favorite relationship from the show, though, because Ian and Poppy is one of those things. And, and I've read kind of interviews from um, Rob, uh, what's his last name? McElhinney. Yes. Um, about their dynamic. And, and someone was asking, like, it's kind of a will they, won't they type deal. And there's definitely that dynamic. But he was saying, look, I honestly feel like some of the best relationships that we can explore in a show like this are platonic. Like it's, it, it, it feels like it's more than, it's not a romantic thing, but it's more than that, if that makes sense. And I, I just love their dynamic. They're, they bring out kind of the best and the worst of each other at the same time. Yeah, the interesting part with, with their relationship is it's 100% work-related, but there's the deeper connection there because of what they've built together. So it is like they're like, like there was the joke at the end of this uh, in the season finale of this past season where they talk to David and they tell him that they're quitting. And, you know, he always kind of joked that that was like his parents. Yeah. <laughs> so they are like a married couple because they created something together, but they're not like, there's no actual like relationship just beyond them being co-workers and having that working relationship and they're they're back and forth I, poppy's hilarious because of like when she yells at some of the other workers <laughs> and just goes off on them and there is a nice give and take because in the first season it was almost like rob's character was the bad guy mm -hmm. and hers was like all right this is the this is the good one who's mm -hmm. trying to you know, help the bad guy figure out everything. And then in season two, it's like, they're actually more alike than they are, you know, apart. Like they're essentially the same person because they view everything the same way. They just want the success. And I think that's why their relationship works so well. So when they're on the screen together and they're going back and forth and having their little one-liners, you know, <laughs> flying around, it's, it's honestly incredible and how they ended season two with him sliding over the little napkin, mm -hmm. you know, which was the callback to how they basically started Mythic Quest was was really cool. Like it was like you realize like whatever happens from this point on, like it's it's going to be new and fresh. And, you know, as long as those two are on the screen, it's going to be really good. Yeah, I, I love shows that are able to build that kind of foundation and, and call back to things like that, because it was uh that was a fantastic end of the season, especially because a couple episodes before that was one of their, the most devastating moments in the history of their relationship because Poppy wouldn't open up to him and be vulnerable and tell him what her fears were. And he basically just slammed her and said, you are scared you'll never do anything without me. <laughs> it was like, yeah. holy shit, I was not expecting that moment because... Ian is not the vulnerable type. And so for her to not reciprocate when he was, um, it really does, like you were saying in season one, he was just kind of the, you know, the asshole boss or whatever. And then it just add layers to him that he's actually a very vulnerable and insecure guy. And for Poppy to not reciprocate that when he did open up, it was, that, that was how he lashes out. So I, I'm, I am really impressed with this show that it has way more depth than just kind of your traditional workplace comedy um and there's so many other great relationships like brad and joe and um you know david and literally anybody because <laughs> it's, so, it's so sad um 
and then and then there's you know Rachel and Dana and and their whole dynamic. Um, so the, I love Carol. I love yes. Carol though, because that, that is one of the best HR characters we've ever seen. It's perfect. It's like the perfect HR character. <laughs> she just like, like don't involve me with anything. Just <laughs> just keep it to yourself and just sign certain things that I'm good. Oh god, that one that one um, kind of standalone episode where they were in the room all together. Just, oh, they just yeah. had to sign off. That was a fantastic episode. Where they get their they get their animal sign or yeah. whatever it was, and they're all freaking out that they didn't get the one they wanted. Yes. Oh God, so good. Um, but what we like to do for this G-rated segment is give the shows that we talk about a rating out of ten. So, um, Justin, if you had to rate Mythic Quest through its first two seasons, what would you be giving it? I'd honestly give it a ten. I, I don't think there's. I, I just don't think there's an episode that I couldn't rewatch and still find funny. I, I think, you know, when you go through each episode, there's something in there that really like resonates with you. Um, when they did the dark, quiet death episode, which was essentially a standalone episode in season one. And that was some of the best television I've ever seen mm-hmm. where they talk about this video game company and like, like there are like it's it's weird because it's a it's a television show that has storylines that are running concurrent well they'll go back in time to show you something that kind of doesn't really have anything to do with the show in itself and it's still like enthralling yeah. you don't really get that out of shows like you know there's standalone episodes where in other shows where if you just pass by them it's not that big of a deal but in this one if you watch them it, it, like it, it'll blow your mind yeah, I'm glad you brought that one up because I was very impressed. Like the the only tie-in to Mythic Quest, the characters, the main cast from that episode was that they started their company in the same building where Ian and Poppy basically eventually started Mythic Quest. So it's it was incredible just the way that they brought in completely new characters for this one episode built up their entire relationship, went through this whole process of how they created this video game, how their creative differences and and their relationship differences eventually drove each other apart. And then the way that it just ended in that episode, like that's really hard to do in just one concise episode of TV that's not even related to the main storyline. Like that is so hard to do. But Uh, it also shows you, I think, what could happen to Mythic Quest and and mm -hmm. Ion and Poppy if they aren't able to work together like if they you know it's kind of interesting like if you just look at the dark quiet death episode and you look at Ian and poppy in season two trying to each build their own expansion pack for mythic quest Mm -hmm. it kind of runs similar to where that was the issue that couple ran into which was one of them wanted to basically monetize it and make it like you know as much money as possible and the other one just wanted it to be this thing that everyone could love. And in season two, it's like Ian wants it to be like this thing where they can make a like a ton of money and just like everything, you know, everything like that. It's like, and Poppy just wanted for everyone to love it and have their own fun time doing things. And it's kind of interesting from that point of view of like that building for the show, we've already seen one company go down and this other company it could have gone down that same road had the two of them not actually realized they should be able to work together and make their own thing. Yeah. And it was, it's those kind of tie-ins 
especially when it at first hits you as like, this is totally unrelated. Like this has nothing to do with the story, but the way that they're able to bring those types of things together is, has been really impressive. Um, Justin, oh, I should probably get my, my final G rating. I would give it a nine out of 10 as well. I really enjoyed the show. Um, and I, I haven't seen if it's been renewed for season three yet, but I have to hope that it is because it's been phenomenal. Um, Justin, thank you so much for joining. Tell the people where they can read your work, find your work, follow you on Twitter, plug whatever you want to plug. All right, you can find me on Twitter at, at flybynight. That's F-L-Y-B-Y-K-N-I-T-E. You can find me on patreon.com slash flybynight, same spelling. Um, I'm also, uh, I also do a podcast for the Clippers called Clip and Roll. Um, so if you want to stop by and listen to some Clipper stuff, I haven't done one yet for the series. I plan on doing that tonight. It's just as we've talked about the open, I have no time. So it's been a, quite the experience to try to get a bunch of stuff in. No time and minimal energy. I know that grind right now. But uh, when I came back from Phoenix, I want you to know when I came back from Phoenix, mm -hmm. I landed, drove home late. Uh, no, excuse me. I landed, drove to get something to eat sat there at a restaurant, ate for an hour, came home and then passed out for 12 hours. <laughs> and then I woke up the next day and passed out again for another like eight hours. I like, I was just exhausted. It's exhausting. And probably being out in this Phoenix heat probably didn't help at all. It's, it'll take it out of you, honestly. <laughs> My hotel was two blocks away from the arena. Uh, and when I had to walk there on Sunday afternoon, <laughs> I, I, I honestly wondered why I was even existing in life anymore. <laughs> I was like drenched. I was like hyperventilating walking into the arena. Like, oh my God. <laughs> oh, it's fantastic. Well, thank you so much again, Justin, for coming on the show. That's going to do it for this episode of Valley of the Sun podcast. Please, please make sure to subscribe. Tell your friends. If you're enjoying the show, write me a five-star review. But until next time, this is Joe Borgay signing off.